So today, more importantly, though, is Palm Sunday, and that is, of course, the Sunday on which Christians traditionally remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, with the people laying palm branches before him as he rode into the city as a king, albeit a humble king, riding on a donkey and not on a war horse. And we have been, these past few weeks, focusing on the last hours of the end of that week together on Sunday mornings, and starting with the Last Supper and leading into the garden betrayal by Judas and Peter's courtyard denials of Christ as Jesus' trial began. And I want you to notice in all of that something that really should be quite striking to us, and that is that Jesus made himself available for all of these things. He put himself out there and he made himself available. He didn't avoid or refuse all of these things that came to him. He simply made himself available. And so as his trial begins in earnest here in these passages before you on page six of your bulletin, his refusal, his absolute refusal to self-defend what is really, we have to admit, a very defensible case puts him in a position to cover you and me for our indefensible guilt. So you young disciples, as we read these verses in front of you and these accounts of Jesus' trial, I want you to to pay attention here. Maybe you can even borrow a pen or a pencil from mom or dad and underline the words that Jesus actually says in all of this account. Underline his words. There are not many of them there, you'll find. And we'll see what he says here. Luke 22, beginning in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned Jesus at length, but he gave no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. 
for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And a third time, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and help us, Lord, to recognize your remarkable work of redemption in history and how you've done that in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe that and that you would change us and make us new today. Father, help us to see us for what we are and to see you for what you are and and to see Jesus for what he's done for us and to believe that and to find life in it. Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In November of 1995, I was in my first year of seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and my brother and his wife were in their first and only year in a job in southern Minnesota. We're from Texas, and Minnesota's a bit of a different place. They were living there for one year, and I decided that Thanksgiving to drive up to Minnesota to join them for the holiday. My parents were going to be there, too. And we spent a few pleasant days of holiday there with my brother and his wife, and then it was time for me to head south and return to St. Louis. But that morning, it was a Sunday, the weather forecast was calling for possibly a snowstorm to come through Minnesota and Wisconsin. And so I dashed out of church and left in a hurry to make my way east into Wisconsin to hit the interstate south to St. Louis. And as I was driving, that snowstorm came much faster and much heavier than I would have imagined it could, being from Texas, I don't realize these things. And I was driving in the snow along with the rest of the traffic, and the snow came heavy and hard, and and eventually the traffic just slowed down to a crawl, 20, 25 miles per hour we were going. And ruts formed in the road where the tires had been, and so I was just following the ruts of the car in front of me, and eventually my tires slipped out of the ruts, and I lost control, And my car began to slide, slowly but surely, sideways and down off the embankment into the median between the interstate. And I got out of the car, snow coming heavily, and I thought, don't know what to do now. Here I am, Wisconsin, snowstorm, I'm stuck. And a few moments later, a tow truck came pulling up along the side of the road. This guy was evidently out seeking to help or maybe to troll for business, 
for people like me who were stuck on the side of the road, and he pulled up, and I was so glad to see him. And he said, it'll be $200 cash. And at that moment, another car came pulling up. It was a state trooper pulled up behind the, the tow truck, and I was kind of relieved to see that. And the trooper came walking out, and, and um, we began to talk, and the trooper said, uh, well, what happened here? And I said, well, sir, my car, it slid off, the, and he said, I can see that. How fast were you driving? And I said, well, I was going along with the other traffic. I think maybe we were going 25 miles. And well, that was obviously too fast, wasn't it? The questions began to come, and he knew the end that he had in mind here, and the Texas license plates on my car, I'm sure, didn't help my case a bit. And eventually he said, okay, look, pay this tow truck driver whatever he asks you and get that car out of my median. Tow truck driver said, $200 cash. I didn't have that in my wallet, but I had something. And so I pulled out my wallet, and I think I had maybe $150. Thankfully, it was something somewhat respectable. And I said, this is what I've got. Took every last dollar out of my wallet. He hooked up my car, and in five minutes, he had me up on the road. And they both took off and were gone. It was a kangaroo court on the roadside in Wisconsin. I'll never forget it. What is a kangaroo court? It's an unfair trial, right? It's, it's a trial, so to speak, where a verdict is determined by force more than by evidence. And it's really, if you think about it, not fair to the kangaroos. I mean, what do they do to get this kind of moniker on them? I, I think it's called that because of the way that such a trial leaps and bounds over the evidence to get to where it's going. And so they call it a kangaroo court. I guess that's why they do that. It's not right, and it's not just. But my kangaroo court on that snowy embankment two decades ago proved only one thing, and that was that I should not have been driving in those conditions. But in the sovereign providence of God, another series of kangaroo courts in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago proved the glorious truths of who Jesus was and is, and very ironically, it has set us free. So in these two chapters, Luke 22 and 23, that we've been in these past weeks, Luke walks us slowly through the hours of the last night of Jesus' life. He walks us through the preparation for the Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples, and on into the discussion of the disciples around the table, and even their dispute among themselves about who among them is the greatest. And Luke walks us on through Jesus' warning to Peter about Satan's evil intentions for him. And we see in Luke's account the intense prayer on the Mount of Olives that Jesus leads his disciples into. And then Judas' betrayal in the garden and Peter's denials in the courtyard and even the mocking abuse by the arresting soldiers. And now, in these verses, Luke walks us carefully through some details of this series of kangaroo court trials. Why does he do that? Why does Luke do that for us? Because he wants for Theophilus, his friend to whom he wrote his account, and for that matter for every one of us who are beloved by God, to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Kings and the only real friend a sinner can ever have. 
Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of elders gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council. Now they had, as John read for us last week, just arrested Jesus in that olive grove. And it was an awkward and tricky sort of arrest scenario. Luke gives us some details, but it's interesting to read all the gospel accounts and see more of the details of what happened there. John, in his gospel, tells us that when the soldiers came, Jesus took charge immediately, and he said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And John tells us, Jesus responded, I am he. But Jesus uses there the same words that he had used in responding to the Pharisees a year earlier when they questioned who he was. And Jesus said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees wanted to stone him for that because they knew what he was saying. They knew that he was claiming to be God and they wanted to put him to death for it. John tells us that Jesus used the same words in response to these soldiers, and the soldiers responded by backing off. They even fell to the ground because they were so marveled at the authority of this simple peasant who was standing before them. It was an awkward and strange sort of arrest that they faced. And now this unarmed peasant took the privilege of dismissing his disciples and giving himself over with his own authority to theirs. This was no ordinary prisoner they had on their hands. And they took him to their council. Their council was the Sanhedrin, of course, we call it. The, the gathering of Jewish religious leaders who exercised authority over Jewish matters in the Roman state. Now, they had been troubled by Jesus' following as it grew and grew, and his popularity grew among the people, and that was threatening to their own authority. And so they were looking for a crime to accuse him of, of course. And so they gathered together and pulled him in front of themselves and asked him, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, this is actually really a two-sided sort of inquiry here. The first side, and maybe the obvious side to us, is the theological side of it. They're asking him, are you the Christ? And they know good and well what they're asking. Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one about whom our scriptures tell us, prophet, priest, and king, the anointed ones of the Old Testament scriptures, are you the one that the Old Testament had promised, that one day one would appear who would be a greater prophet than Moses, a priest greater than Melchizedek even, and a, a king greater than David, they want to know, are you the fulfillment of this, Jesus? Is this what you think of yourself? And Jesus knows that they're really not interested in believing in him. He tells them as much, if I tell you, you won't even believe it. So let's not play games here. And so instead he gives them a bit of a, a scriptural riddle, which he knows that they will get. He says to them, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, all along, he'd been referring to himself as the Son of Man. They probably would have known that by now. And they also knew their book of Daniel. They knew their books of Psalms. And they knew some of the scriptures where Jesus was alluding to. Psalm 110, the Lord is at your right hand, O God, and with power. 
power, he will judge the nations. And now Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is me. And from now on, I'll sit at the Father's right hand. And they're not pleased with it. They know what he's saying here. They seem to to be cluing in that the Messiah would have a unique relationship as a son to God, as a father. And so they follow up and they ask him, are you the son of God then? And Jesus gives this cryptic sort of answer, doesn't he? He says to them, you say that I am. He doesn't want to play their games. He knows they're playing games with with him. And so he says, "You, you say that I am. And it kept them at arm's length, but it didn't deny the truth. And they took it as a strong yes, didn't they? And what do they say? We've heard it from his own lips. We don't need anything else from this guy. We know what he's saying. What do they think that they were hearing? What do they think he was saying? What is he being accused of? Blasphemy. That's what they're after him for. That's what they want to pin him down for is blasphemy. They're accusing him of breaking that religious law. What is blasphemy? It's irreverence toward God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain or any other vain sort of activity or reference that will bring God down to your level, like claiming to be the Son of God. And they're they're accusing him of blasphemy. How dare you claim to be the Son of God? That's blasphemous, they're saying to him. Now, of course, many people in our day and age suggest that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. They read the scriptures and they they suggest that he never actually said it. He never actually stood up on a hillside and said, hey people, I'm God. Because that's what we would want. And they think that this vague answer even is suggesting that. I I saw, uh, the I think, the recent edition of the National Geographic magazine in the grocery aisle. And being spring and leading into Easter, it Well, Easter sells, and Jesus sells around the time of Easter. And so National Geographic's magazine is completely devoted to the person of Jesus. Who is he, and and what did he do, and what is he all about, and what should we expect from him? And those sorts of discussions in magazines, popular magazines like that, always incline themselves to say, you know, what we really know about him is that he was a wise teacher. And that was all that he ever really claimed to be. He wasn't really the son of God. He didn't claim to be such a thing. But those who suggest that he never claimed it don't see what these religious leaders could see very clearly on their own. They could see, as as you read even through the Gospels, you could see the accounts of how he forgave sins of people whom he had never even met. You don't typically walk up to a stranger on the street and talk to them for a moment and then tell them, your sins are forgiven. You don't do that, do you? You might, if you're evangelizing or speaking gospel words to them, you might just say to them, in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven because you repent. You might say that, but you would never just say, yeah, your sins are forgiven. Jesus did that all the time. Only God does that. And not only that, but when he spoke of the Old Testament, as he so often did in the Gospels, Jesus did not do what the Old Testament characters would do, saying, thus says the Lord, and then quote from some Old Testament scripture. What did Jesus do? He said, truly I say to you, and then he would quote God's word. 
claiming to be God. And not only that, but when he healed people and they came to him in thanks and gratitude and bowed down in worship, he didn't tell them to stand up. Everyone else told them to stand up. No, I'm not, I'm not God, don't worship. No, he didn't do that. He let them bring worship to him and he received it. He claimed by all of his actions and even his words to be the son of God. And these religious leaders, even with their evil motives, recognized exactly what Jesus was saying. And so the question for you and for me is, do you actually recognize Jesus as the son of God? Is he for you just a a good teacher of some good advice and good ideas about how to live better during the week and how to get the most out of your potential? Or is he actually the Son of God who comes with authority to change your life? If you recognize that he is, then the second side of that inquiry will make some sense to you. It's not just a theological inquiry on the part of the Sanhedrin. It's also a very political inquiry because they wanted to put Jesus to death. He was threatening to their authority, and they wanted to put him to death, but they couldn't do that. The religious authorities had no authority to exercise capital punishment apart from the Roman civil authorities, and the civil authorities would not care if some guy was claiming to be God That wouldn't bother them. They weren't interested in blasphemy. But they would care if he claimed to be a king. And the Messiah is the king of kings. Verse 23, verse 1, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They took him to the local Roman governor, Pilate. Under the Roman governor, that Sanhedrin had no authority to carry out capital punishment, and so they had to go to the Roman authorities to do it, to get that death sentence. And Pontius Pilate would not care about Jewish religious matters. Blasphemy was irrelevant to him. But treason would not be. Treason would be of great interest to him. And Pontius Pilate, who is normally in Caesarea, the city over by the Mediterranean Sea, would come to Jerusalem for these feast weeks with his soldiers to keep the peace. And so they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Pilate. And what is their accusation? They say to Pilate, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to pay tribute, that is taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, which is, Pilate, by the way, a king. All three of those accusations are treasonous, aren't they? They all could be construed as as insurrection and uprising against the civil authorities. And some of them are just flat-out lies, aren't they? I mean, they've, they've said to him that, that Jesus was forbidding them to pay taxes, to pay tribute to Caesar. Just a few days before, someone had questioned him on that very matter. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, and maybe you know the account of what he said there. Jesus very wisely said, well, show me what you use to pay that tax. They showed him a coin, and he said, whose picture, whose image is that on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. He said, well, give to Caesar where his image belongs and give to God where his image belongs. That was no subtle hint to them to give their souls to the one who made them, even if they gave their coins to the one who ruled them. That suggestion was just a lie. The rest of it's misleading itself. They're saying to to Pilate that this man claims to be a king. And so that's what Pilate focuses on, isn't it? 
So Pilate asks him the question. And surely Pilate's skeptical because here's this peasant man who's coming without. I mean, there aren't swords clashing outside of Pilate's window at this point. And this peasant man, Pilate looks at him, surely with a skeptical eye, and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Really? He doesn't believe it. And Jesus gave, interestingly, the same answer to Pilate that he gave to the religious leaders. But he gave it for different reasons. To the religious leaders, he had said, to their question, are you the son of God? He had said, you say that I am. Because, again, he knew they were playing games. But to Pilate, he answers this question, are you king of the Jews? By saying, you have said so. Because he knew that neither a yes nor a no would be a helpful answer for Pilate. This was not a yes or no question. Because Pilate's concept of the question was completely different than the reality of who Jesus was. If Jesus had said to to Pilate, yes, I'm a king, that would to Pilate mean swords and soldiers and battle horses. Because to Pilate, the power of a king is the power of physical domination. That's his currency. That's his language. So Jesus couldn't tell him yes. It wouldn't make any sense. But he also couldn't tell him no, because that would be untrue, because he is the king of all kings. His power being not physical domination, but redemption of not just the physical, but the spiritual, the intellectual, every part of existence. Jesus' power is redemption. And so he couldn't give him a no either. He gives him what is the only brilliant answer he could give. You have said so. John's gospel gives a little bit more detail there. In John's gospel, Jesus elaborates a bit, and he explains to Pilate, look, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would be fighting, but they're not. You know, Jesus was claiming to be a king. He had come in on Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a a donkey, and palm branches being laid before him. That would be the typical greeting of of an arriving, visiting king, he was no doubt claiming to be a king, but Pilate simply wouldn't understand because Pilate's idea of a king and the power that he wields is not Jesus' idea of a king. And so Pilate senses no threat from this guy. And so he tells the accusers, I find no guilt in this man. But the accusers complain. He stirs up the people teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to Jerusalem. And now Pilate sees a way out. He sees a way to wash his own hands of this thing. Galilee, is he from Galilee? Yes, he is. And so the ruler of Galilee is in town too, and Pilate sends him to Herod. Now this is not the infamous Herod the Great who ruled from Jerusalem when Jesus was born. This is not that one who built so much around Israel and who killed the young boys of Bethlehem. This is not that one, but it is rather his son. And it had been said of Herod the Great that it's better to be Herod's dog than to be his son because he was just as likely to kill his wife or wives and sons if they posed any threat to him as he was to kill his dog. And this son escaped that trauma. But the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This Herod, the son, was 
just as much of a lunatic as his father was. He had executed John the Baptist in a drunken stupor. And now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad because he knew of Jesus and he wanted to be entertained by him. He wanted to see some miracle be worked in his presence. And so he questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. He simply stood there in silence in Herod's presence. He didn't say a word. Jesus was taking the advice of the proverb, answer a fool according to his folly. Herod was a fool. And so Jesus was giving an appropriate answer. Silence. He wasn't giving him a thing. But fools will do what fools will do. And so Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt, Luke tells us. And they mocked him. They dressed him in a mocking costume. And they sent him back to Pilate, saying, basically, Pilate, here's your king. You can have him back. I find nothing wrong with him except that he's some foolish peasant and I don't need anything from this guy. He won't do anything to entertain me anyway. He sent him back. The religious authorities are afraid of him. But the civil authorities, Pilate and Herod, have absolutely no regard for him. They couldn't care less. This man means nothing to us because the power of the world is force. It's influence, it's money, it's market share, it's all the things that we can use to, to make the world go around. Those things are the power of the world. They're the, the ways that we influence and control our relationships with each other, aren't they? That's the currency of the power of the world, but the power of the gospel is completely different. It's power to change a soul from the inside out. Because God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through his righteous obedience. Imagine that, a king who fulfills all obedience for his kingdom. That's what Jesus does, and that's currency that Pilate simply doesn't understand. But Pilate, whose name, by the way, sits like a scar in the middle of our Apostles' Creed every time we recite it before the Lord's Supper, you know? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. What a way for a name to live in infamy. Pilate was too cynical in his power to see this kind of gospel power. And it's in John's account, again, where Jesus explains to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate responds to him there saying, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you say so, but this purpose is why I was born, to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, in his skeptical cynicism, of course, says, what is truth anyway? He has no concern for otherworldly so-called kingdoms that pose no physical threat to him and his immediate existence. He could not see what Jesus was saying. Am I a king, you ask? Oh, yes, I am. I'm the king of all kings. And so Pilate, in tragic ignorance here, actually shows us all then that Jesus is also the true friend of sinners and the only friend that a sinner could ever have. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. 
And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. No accusations stick. Isn't that amazing? Of all the vehement accusations he's had against him in these past hours, none of them have stuck again and again from Pilate to Herod and now back to Pilate. The accusations have come. Blasphemy? Well, they don't care about that one, for one thing. But no, because Jesus is the Son of God, as all of his life and words have testified to. Treason? No. Because his kingdom is far beyond the trivial swords of Rome. They don't see it. They're not willing to convict him of that accusation or that crime. But while being declared innocent again and again, this is the amazing thing. Jesus was willing to be declared guilty again and again and again because he didn't speak up in his defense. His case was very defensible, but he refused to acknowledge it. Again and again, he made himself willing to be declared guilty. And each gospel emphasizes this. We, we read in these gospel accounts how Pilate grew in frustration in this whole matter because he realized that Jesus was innocent. And he spoke to Jesus, do you hear how they accuse you in Matthew's gospel? Defend yourself, man. Pilate was urgent with Jesus. But Matthew tells us Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. And Matthew tells us that the governor, Pilate, was amazed at that. How can you not speak up in your defense? You're innocent. But he didn't. The governor was amazed because that kind of gospel grace makes no sense to the world. And so the world cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now it was, of course, as, as we know, a, a custom of the Roman government at the time to release to the Jews one prisoner, and there were always Jewish prisoners in the Roman dungeons, to release one prisoner to them at the feast week to appease the Jewish desires of their Roman governors and it should have been an obvious choice to make here. And so Pontius Pilate, realizing that Barabbas is the one they're requesting and Jesus is the one standing before us, this innocent man, and I know Barabbas is guilty, Pilate, seeing the obvious choice between the two, tries a third time. I mean, look in verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found him not guilty. He deserves no penalty here. I'll punish him if that makes you happy and release him to you. Why are you doing this, people? Pilate tries a third time. If there was an obvious sinner in Jerusalem on that week, it was Barabbas. I mean, Barabbas was in prison for insurrection and murder. Think about it with me for just a moment. Those two crimes that Barabbas was in prison for. Insurrection. It's an attempt to overthrow the government by force. <clears throat> That's treason. And murder. What is murder? It is irreverence. Total disdain for the image of God in a man by taking his life. 
Murder is blasphemy if ever there was blasphemy. Barabbas is in prison already, guilty of treason and blasphemy. If ever there was a sinner, it was Barabbas. He's guilty of the very crimes of which Jesus was falsely accused here. And Pilate clearly recognized the irony of the situation. He was frustrated with it. But he surely didn't recognize the gospel of the situation. The two men before him could not be more different. He realized that. But they also were connected. The one man was the Son of God, the King of Kings, and completely innocent. The other man... Barabbas, Barabbas, Bar Abba, son of the father. The other man was a son of the father and guilty. You know, here you have one son of the father who is guilty in everyone's eyes, and you have another son of the father who is innocent, and the two of them are about to trade places. I mean, it The the clarity of gospel grace here couldn't possibly be more clear to us in looking back in history. Pilate didn't see it. But do you see what Luke is doing with this? He's emphasizing a humiliating insult against you and me. Against you and me for our own good. He's telling us that we are Barabbas. We are Barabbas the sons and daughters of the Father who are guilty. We're we're guilty of our own treasonous insurrection in our hearts as we overthrow God for our own control, as we do so regularly in the way that we conduct ourselves with our words and our actions and our thoughts. And we're blasphemous murderers, Luke wants us to see, disdaining the image of God and the people around us that we hate and that we shame. We are Barabbas. And you have to wonder, you know, whatever came of this man, Barabbas, that Luke tells us about in this account, whatever came of the man, you know, when he heard the crowd crying, crucify, outside, he was in a prison down below, he, he, he must have thought, here it comes. I mean, I know I'm guilty, and I know that they know I'm guilty, and they're calling for a crucifixion. That's no doubt going to be me. And when the guards came and turned the lock on his prison cell, He knew that death was near. He knew it. He could smell it was coming. And when they led him out to the light, and they said to him, you are free to go. Imagine what was going on in his head. Imagine what he was thinking. You're free to go. That man over there has taken your charges on his silent, undefended lips. That man has taken what your charges are. Whatever came of Barabbas? I mean, don't you wonder? Whatever came of that man as he walked out into the streets on that day, did he walk out mocking Jesus like the rest of them? Maybe. Or did he walk away marveling at the grace that had just been shown to him that he couldn't explain? Which is it? It's one or the other. We don't know. That's one of those things I would love for Scripture to tell us. Wouldn't you love to know what happened to Barabbas if he could just show up in the book of Acts? Wouldn't that be so helpful to us to know? But we don't know what happened to Barabbas. But what God the Father knew is that he had to treat Jesus like Barabbas 
so that he could in turn treat all of us Barabbases like Jesus. That's justification by faith. And that is the gospel. I keep a, a card on our bathroom counter at home that Mary gave me a couple of years ago with a phrase on it that she's used for years of our relationship. And she found this card, remarkably. Her wisdom got translated to Hallmark. And it says, a friend is someone who knows you well and likes you anyway. It's really great wisdom. And it's taking huge steps towards an even more amazing and greater gospel wisdom, which is Jesus is the only friend who knows you far deeper than you can even imagine. And he has not only liked you, but he has loved you. He has loved you and given his righteousness to you by giving his life for you so that, so that you can be, by faith, a son, a daughter of the Father. Kangaroo courts are never pleasing in the sight of God, and this series of them was not, I promise you, but in the sovereignty of God, these kangaroo courts give us glorious truths by which we live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, our God, we give you thanks for these glorious truths that you have shown to us in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would persuade us more and more that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the King of all kings, that he is the friend of sinners of whom each of us is the worst. Father, help us to see that. Help us to believe that. Help us to recognize the depth of our own need for your grace and to believe that you have given to us your grace in the life and death and resurrection of your Son. Father, we give you praise for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.